0: Monday morning you, sure you the go got... Good morning NFL fans. Welcome to another episode of Football Nations Monday Morning Huddle. I'm your host Dave Holcomb. We have a Hall of Fame edition show for you today on our first segment. We're going to be all about the Hall of Fame weekend, talking about the, the seven uh, former players and coaches that got into the Hall of Fame uh, and go over, recap briefly each player's career and explain why they were deserving uh, in getting into the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, and I. Uh, this a segment we did last year, and it was pretty successful, so hopefully uh, we have some success like we did last year. It's a great education about some of the older players that some of the young guys that may be listening might not know. And then for some of us in our 20s, maybe even 30s, I looked into some of the even older guys that played a long, long time ago. Um, and we learn a little bit about them as well. So it's an education for me too. Really, really cool beginning of our show. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about Hall of Fame snubs. That's in the first segment. Second segment, we're going to go into a couple little little um, tidbit stories, including Art Donovan, who died um, on Sunday night. ESPN announced that he passed away, uh, former Colts defensive tackle. He's a Hall of Fame a member in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton. We'll go over the Hall of Fame game that happened on Sunday night. Cowboys defeated the Dolphins 24 to 24 to 20 and then uh, Adrian Peterson and Patrick Peterson in the news this week. We'll talk about them. And going to our fourth and long segment in our third segment of the show, We're going to talk a little bit more Hall of Fame. Donovan McNabb got his number retired last week. We talked about it on our show. Is he deserving of being in the Hall of Fame someday? Tony Gonzalez, as he continues to climb up uh, the the receptions list, could he catch possibly catch Jerry Rice? And then uh, we're going to throw in a question about the Pro Bowl that came out. They're changing that, and uh, Tim Tebow as well. But let's start out with the Hall of Fame induction ceremony. We're going to go in alphabetical order. <laughs> and starting with Larry Allen, an interior lineman, offensive guard on the Dallas Cowboys drafted by them in 1994, played for Dallas till 2005 and then ended his career with the San Francisco 49ers 2006-2007. Larry Allen was one of the best at his position during that that time frame. Seven all-pros, 11 Pro Bowls, made the all-decade team in two different decades. That's so impressive. I know there's there's a bunch of guys that have done that, and it's possible to do if your career spans over two decades. But come to think of it, if your career spans over two decades, it's very difficult to make either decade team. Because we don't – you don't look at your whole career. when you, When they picked the 90s decade team, obviously they had nothing – they only had Allen's first six seasons to base on whether he's, he was deserving. Now, starting in 1994, that that's really not that hard to really d- determine. Um, but we have seen in other cases, um, Barry Bonds, for instance, in baseball, if there's baseball fans out there, he didn't make the all-century team, and Ken Griffey Jr. did. Now, I don't think it's a crime, really, that Ken Griffey Jr. made it in front of Bonds. Both great players, but... Few years after uh, the they announced that Barry Bonds was breaking home run records, whether those were honest or not, based on whether he took drugs or not, um, could be up to interpretation. But uh, as I my point is, determining whether a player makes an All Decade team is, can sometimes not be hundred percent correct. They, you know what they what they really should do is go back and pick. Uh, the All-Decade Team. Years later, and but I guess it, then it would be slightly different setup. It's it's based solely on what you do in that decade, not on your whole career. So to make two of those teams is really impressive. So and and Allen was a, one of the lead blockers on the Cowboys. One of the their. Probably their best offensive lineman while they were winning Super Bowls was not on the first two Super Bowl winning teams, just on the Super Bowl 30 team that won in 1995, but he helped Emmitt Smith reach that all-time rushing record, 18,355 yards in his career. Over 17,000 of those yards were with the Dallas Cowboys, and uh, he helped Frank Gore launch his career in 2006-2007. Gore rushed for a 1,000 yards in his first couple of seasons with the 49ers, so Allen a big part of that as well. All the way to the end of his career, he was a force blocking people in the NFL, so definitely deserving of the Hall of Fame. This next guy, I think I said it last year on our show, should have been in the Hall of Fame years ago. Years ago. And that's wide receiver Chris Carter. I really don't understand why Hall of Fame voters don't like the wide receiver position. And maybe we can get into that discussion a little bit later in the show. But let's start with well, – let's, let's go with Carter's stats. 1987 and 89, Philadelphia Eagle, and then for the bulk of his career, played for the Minnesota Vikings 1990-2001. For a long time when I was a kid, I didn't even know that he played for the Eagles. And then <laughs> um, remembering his career now – Um, I always tell people that he played for the Eagles and Vikings, but he only played for the Eagles for three seasons. I I, I didn't know that until I looked it up for the show that he only played three seasons in Philadelphia and definitely a big bulk of his career in Minnesota, his best seasons coming with the Vikings. And he actually played a few games in 2002 after coming back from an injury with the Miami Dolphins. Uh, That's something that I didn't really remember back in over 10 years ago. Uh, I guess I, I vaguely remember that. Vaguely remember him coming back uh, to play for because uh, he he wanted to keep playing and he wanted to catch on with a team. I get Minnesota did not want him anymore, so he did play a few games with the Dolphins. But that very un, unmemorable, if you ask me. Eight straight one thousand yard receiving seasons for Carter. This guy's stats are just unbelievable. He was the second player. With 1,000 catches when he reached that, there's still only eight players with 1,000 catches, which is unbelievable. 1,101 catches in his career, 130 touchdowns. When he retired in 2002, he was second on both lists, no longer second, but still in the top eight in catches and in the top three in touchdowns. 122 catches in 1994 was a record at the time since broken by Reggie Wayne. Excuse me, Marvin Harrison, not Reggie Wayne, the other Occult's wide receiver, Marvin Harrison. And his 13,899 yards ranks ninth all-time among receivers. He played in a decade or played in an era that was pass-heavy or was... Heading towards pass heavy. But if you ask me, why is a guy like Chris Carter being punished for the way the game has been changing? I I really don't understand why guys like Chris Carter, Tim Brown, and Andre Reid are the three guys that really come to mind. And there's going to be more in the future. For instance, Hines Ward. And then new guys coming up like Terrell Owens and Randy Moss. These are six guys... I just named six, six wide receivers that are Hall of Fame worthy. And I think it's going to take a long time for these guys to get in, if they get in at all. It's taken Chris Carter 10 years. So you have to be out of the league at least five. So it's it's been five years where he got rejected from the, from the Hall of Fame voters. And I think that's a crime. Yeah, he got in, so it, it doesn't really matter. But why make him wait? It's... It, it, makes him more deserving, I guess. Or not more deserving. It makes it sweeter for Carter when he finally gets in. But I don't understand why it takes some of these players longer than others to get in. And this guy is definitely deserving. He's one of the best wide receivers of all time. That's what I don't understand why it takes him five years to get in. To me, he's a first ballot guy. I think first ba- the concept of a first ballot player or versus a non-first ballot player is kind of dumb to begin with. But okay, for the sake of argument, let's say there are first ballot players and there aren't. Carter, to me, is a first ballot player. I just read you his stats. He's top five in several categories and top ten in almost all of them. In all of the categories I listed, he was top ten in all the major categories of receiving. Yeah, he played in the era where quarterbacks threw a lot. But are we punishing John Elway? Are we punishing Dan Marino? Because quarterbacks threw more? We're not punishing quarterbacks and quarterback stats, but we are receiving stats. That doesn't make sense to me. Dan Marino, John Elway, played in this same era, the late 80s to the early 2000s. Elway and Marino came in a little bit earlier, but basically played the same era. And a guy like Carter, a guy like Brown and Reed are getting punished for the way football changed and the quarterbacks aren't. It doesn't make sense. It really, it's a head scratcher to me. But finishing up, Chris Carter, eight-time Pro Bowler, also 1990s All-Decade team, one of my favorite players to watch as a kid. Uh, him paired with Randy Moss in 1998 was just—I still think—the most lethal wide receiver combo in pro football history. And we've seen a lot of great one-two combos in NFL history. I really believe Chris Carter and Randy Moss was the best. And Randy Moss was a rookie <laughs> in 1998, and that was the best offense up until the 2007. 2007- 2007 Patriots, that was the highest scoring offense of all time. It's a shame that that team didn't get to play in the Super Bowl. But moving on to a guy that played much earlier than Chris Carter, Curly Culp, 1968 to 1974. He was a Kansas City Chief, 75 to 1980. He played for the Houston Oilers and then finished up his career in Detroit, 1980 to 1981. He was actually drafted by the Denver Broncos, and was traded to the Kansas City Chiefs, and he fit perfectly into that Chiefs dominating defense in the late 60s, was a defensive tackle on the team, and was a part of the Super Bowl winning team in Super Bowl IV, the victory over the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, and record He actually recorded three tackles in that game. was a 1975 All-Pro, he helped the Houston Oilers turn it around, and they won 10 games in 1975, the first time that franchise ever did that five-time Pro Bowler, 68 sacks in his career, 14 forced fumbles, and 10 fumble recoveries. So very nice to see the old-time player make it into the Hall of Fame, a guy that I really did not know anything about. There are some other guys, for instance, Willie Lanier that I knew about on uh, the Kansas City Chief uh, defensive team on their defense back in the late 1960s. So it's nice to see these guys Get recognition, and then we get to talk about them, and us young folk get to learn more about them. So I think that's really cool. If that, if he wouldn't have made the Hall of Fame, I would have never known about him. But he's definitely deserving to know about one of the best defensive tackles to ever play. Now he's in the Hall of Fame. Moving down the list, Jonathan Ogden, offensive tackle for the Baltimore Ravens, was the first ever selection by the Ravens when they moved to Baltimore away from Cleveland played from 1996 to 2007 he was the fourth overall pick in that draft the leader on the offensive line of the Ravens for years was the lead blocker for Jamal Lewis in his 2,000 yard season in 2003 he also got 295 yards in one game in that season against ironically the Cleveland Browns Uh, was a six-time all-pro 11 times to the Pro Bowl, a member of the 2000 All-Decade team, and a member also of the Super Bowl 35 champion Baltimore Ravens. So one of the best offensive linemen that I've ever saw play, perhaps the best tackle. There's really no other tackles that come to mind um, that were better. Just overall was a big guy. I think he was about 6'8". Was strong. He could out overpower you. He had quick feet, and he was great in in the rush, uh, rush blocking, run blocking, and also excellent in pass protection. Definitely deserving of the Hall of Fame. So, and he actually is a first ballot guy. So, <laughs> and I delir- deservingly so. Whether you want to argue for people being on first ballot or not, he is a guy that no doubt about it. He's a Hall of Famer. Next, the one head coach on the list, Bill Parcells, coached four different teams to the playoffs, the only head coach that has ever done that. And through his career, he doesn't have a ton of wins and didn't have a great winning percentage. I don't mean to put him down in any way. 172-130-1 and one is an excellent record for the NFL. But in my mind, he's a guy that took bad teams And turned them into gold. He took a New York Giants team that many people probably forget that was awful. In 1982, the New York Giants were terrible, and immediately—well, not well—I won't say immediately—but he eventually turned them into a playoff team. In 1985, they well, they got shut out by the Bears that year in the division round, but in 1986, they advanced all the way to the Super Bowl, winning Super Bowl. 21, he also coached the New York Giants to Super Bowl 25 victory over the Buffalo Bills. Arguably, the Bills were better that season. They had a great offense, and the Bills, looking back at history, made four straight Super Bowls. That was the one year that I felt like that they should have won that Super Bowl. Looking back, of course, the Scott Norwood missed field goal. Perhaps without that missed field goal, we, have, we don't have Bill Parcells in the, in the, in the Hall of Fame. Who knows? I think one of the biggest things on his resume is the two-time Super Bowl champ. There's a lot of coaches out there that have won one, but to win two is really impressive, and Parcells did that with the Giants in, in a pretty short period of time. He retired from New York, actually after the 1990 season, winning that Super Bowl, but returned to head coaching in 1993. A little thing I didn't know about Parcells, he was a announcer, well, an analyst on TV during that, that time period in the early 90s between coaching jobs, and he actually agreed to the head coaching position at Tampa Bay. It was a handshake agreement with the owner there in, in Tampa Bay, and he went back on his word, little thing that Wikipedia will tell you. So I found that very interesting, and he... he the, the quote on Wikipedia was, it wasn't the right fit for me at the time. That, of course, was from Parcells. But he did end up taking the New England job in 1993. And again, the Patriots were awful in 1992 in the early 90s. But Parcells took them over and made them into a playoff team within two years. And in 1996, the team went to the Super Bowl, unfortunately for Parcells, losing to the Green Bay Packers. Uh, in Super Bowl 31. So could have became the only head coach to win two Super Bowls with two different teams. No coach has ever done that. Parcells came the closest. I didn't look this up before the show, but I believe Parcells is the only coach to have coached two two teams to the Super Bowl. Now, if, if, uh, if that's incorrect, let me know, but I'm pretty sure that is the case. But after the 1996 season... Bill Parcells got into disagreements with Patriots owner, Robert Kraft, and uh, Parcells ended up leaving the team for the New York Jets, a big controversy there where the Jets had to give New England some draft picks in order for Parcells to, to coach uh, New York, the other New York team. And again, the Jets were awful before Parcells took over. In 1996, they were 1-15, in and by 1998, Parcells took them to the franchise best 12-4 record. It's the best turnover, best two-year turnover in NFL history. And the Jets went all the way to the AFC Championship game where they were defeated by the Denver Broncos who were in that mini Super Bowl run they won back-to-back in 1997 and 1998. After the 1999 season, which was a disappointing year for the Jets, finishing 8-8 when they were... Supposed to be contending for the Super Bowl, but fell well short of expectations. He left coaching again, went back to broadcasting with ESPN this time, but returned when uh, Jerry Jones asked him out of retirement in 2003. And that season, he took the Cowboys to the playoffs, winning 10 games. That's when he became the only coach to coach a team to 10 wins and a playoff berth. Never won a playoff game with Dallas, but... Really wasn't his fault that uh, Tony Romo wasn't able to hold on to that snap in two thousand six against Seattle. That was a game that Dallas had won if they just make that field goal. So I wouldn't blame Parcells completely for the zero and two record in the playoffs uh, with Dallas. He had an excellent record uh, overall. I said once, not well, I, again not excellent, but a good record at one seventy two, one thirty, and one two Super Bowls, three conference championships. New England being the other one, other Super Bowl appearance, five division titles in his 19 seasons, and an 11 and 8 record in the playoffs, but an excellent record with the Giants in the playoffs at 8 and 3. The next guy is also a young or older guy that many of you may not have heard of. This guy I had heard of before, so I had some background on him. 1963 to 1972, Dave Robertson was a Green Bay Packer. Dave Robinson did I I think I said his name wrong to start off Dave Robinson was a Green Bay Packer known as one of the best uh, off uh, outside linebackers in the 60s part of that Green Bay Packer dynasty did play for the Redskins from 73 to 74 to end up his to end his career three Pro Bowls three All NFL teams and is a member of the 1960s all decade team Outstanding linebacker again on that, Dynasty Packers. Three-time NFL champion from 1965 to 1967. Many people out there might not know because it didn't happen during the Super Bowl era, but Green Bay is the only team to three-peat in NFL history doing it. The first two Super Bowls in 1966 and 1967, they actually won the year before, too, winning the last NFL championship. Well, that last true NFL championship, they did have... Technically, the, the Colts and Vikings winning the NFL championship in 1968-1969. But the last, quote-unquote, real NFL championship in 1965, prior to the Super Bowl era, that was Green Bay winning it, uh, part of their three-peat. So Dave Robinson, part of that great um, Packer defense that included Herb Adderley, um, Willie Davis. Willie Wood, some of the best uh, defensive players really to ever play the game. And it's great that I, – I think it's a shame in a way that there are so many great players on one team. But I think writers are somewhat reluctant to vote in more than three or four guys that play together. I can, You kind of see that with a couple instances. It's true with the 60s. Packers. I think it's true with the 70s Steelers, their defense. They have four guys in. I think they could have easily five or six guys from that defense in. We're talking about some of the greatest defenses of all time in the Packers and Steelers. They deserve these players just because they play with other great players doesn't mean they weren't great as well. So I'm very happy that a guy like Dave Robinson got in, even though it's much later after his retirement I think it's it's something that he he deserves to be in, and so it's justice that he finally gets in, even though it's so many years later. But anyway, we get to learn more about him because it's so many years later. Like like I said, that that part of it is really cool. And the last guy on our list, I would argue, might have been the most dominant player. I, I talked up Chris Carter a lot, so maybe maybe Chris Carter would be the. If you're going to rank the players on this list, I mean, they're all Hall of Famers now, uh, but Jonathan Ogden, I think, has got to be one of the top players on this list as well. But the last guy, Warren Sapp, defensive tackle, 1995 to 2003, was a Tampa Bay Buck. immediately made an impact. He was a first-round pick, all-rookie in 1995. 2004 to 2007, he ended his career with the Oakland Raiders, really fit in with the Raiders, even though they were really bad at that point in time, still are uh, nine, 96 and a half sacks in his career. And I remember his, uh, I said this, I remember saying this on the show last year. Um, but his famous quote at the end of his career, somebody asked him, are you disappointed? You didn't get the triple digit sacks in your career. Sap responded, 96 and a half sacks is three digits. (laughs) I still laugh at that. Anyway, Sap, a very dominating player in his day, the 1995 Defensive Player of the Year. That season he had 12.5 sacks, 54 tackles, 3 forced fumbles, and 2 fumble recoveries. Now, meanwhile, he's, he's an interior defensive lineman, and he got 96.5 sacks in his career and 12.5 in the season. That that's, I believe, I didn't double-check this, but I believe he has the most sacks of any interior lineman of all time. Uh, This guy was just a force inside for Tampa Bay. He got 16.5 sacks in 2000. Four times in his career, he had 10 sacks or more. Went to the championship game twice with Tampa Bay. 1999, in his best, arguably his best season, Uh, Tampa Bay fell just short of the St. Louis Rams, who ended up winning the Super Bowl that year. And then in 2002, they defeated the Eagles. In Philadelphia, the last game at Veterans Stadium, and then they went on to win Super Bowl 37. Four-time All-Pro, seven-time Pro Pro Bowler, and member of the 1990s and 2000s All-Decade team. Like I said, that's really difficult to do. Uh, Larry Allen did it, and so did Warren Sapp. Again, he started his career in ninety-five. By 99, he was the best defensive player in the league, so definitely worthy of the 90s team. And then in 2000s, he was playing very well, and he played all the way to 2007, so it's kind of a rare case where he played very well in both decades. So that rounds up the seven guys who got into the Hall of Fame this past weekend. Let's get into a little bit of who didn't get into the Hall of Fame that I believe is worthy now. There's uh, there've been a lot of articles on our website, footballnation.com, of people writing about Hall of Fame snubs. Uh, Mick Warsaw wrote one a few weeks ago that I thought was really good, so you should check that out. I reference it on, in in my podcast in the podcast write up. Um, so we don't have enough time to get into all the players that I think are worthy, but I'm going to bring up three guys, uh, three recent guys, all players that have played within the last ten years. And that I believe really should have been in the Hall of Fame this year, and I don't, I, or the year before, or the year before that. Well, in one case, he wasn't eligible before this year, but I, I don't understand why these guys aren't in yet. I'm gonna start with another wide receiver, Tim Brown. I mentioned him before. I think Andre Reed should be in. We're not gonna talk about him today, but I believe he should be in. I think Heinz Ward, when he comes up for eligibility, he should be in. He's not eligible yet, but Tim Brown, 1,094 catches. 14,934 yards, so he has just a couple less catches than Chris Carter, but he has more yards, 100 touchdowns, so he has 30 less touchdowns. That's quite a bit. But he's been a Hall of Fame finalist for the last four years and hasn't been able to get in. I, I also The other thing that I'm going to nitpick about the Hall of Fame selection, why does only one wide receiver get in a year or one running back a year? It just... If there are three deserving wide receivers put them all in why are you making these guys wait I don't understand nine straight one thousand yard receiving seasons for Tim Brown that's more than Chris Carter by one season Brown with that fourteen thousand I mentioned fifth all time and he's one of the only players to have a thousand catches and more than fourteen thousand yards i there's less than a handful of guys that have that. Now, Chris Carter has 1,000 catches as well, but he only has, um, like I said, 13,000 yards, not quite um, 14,000. He's 100 yards short of that. Um guy that just retired recently, Hines Ward, has a, exactly 1,000 catches, but he doesn't even have that many yards. He has, a, I believe, in the 12,000 yard, um, between 12,000 and 13,000. So these guys have more than um, more, more catches and yards than Heinz Ward, and I believe Heinz Ward's a Hall of Famer. So f- for these guys, I don't understand why they're not in. I, I, I sound like a broken record, but I don't. If somebody wants to explain it to me, please tweet at me, DMHOLCOMB. You can email me, david at gmail.com. Please explain why these guys aren't in the Hall of Fame, or we can have a debate about it. My next guy, Jerome Bettis. Mentioned a couple Steelers already, but Bettis, I still think he should be in Hall of Fame as well. And his first couple of years of eligibility, Marshall Falk got in, and then they put in Curtis Martin. And it's just like you roll your eyes again, and you think, all right, fine. They want to put in one running back, and that's it. Well, the last two years, no running backs made the Hall of Fame, and Bettis is still waiting. So I don't really get that. Uh, the one thing I guess you could argue was he was never the premier running back in the league. He was al- always overshadowed by someone, whether it was Barry Sanders or Terrell Davis or Marshall Falk, or maybe later on a guy, I don't know, Priest Holmes, uh, thinking of uh, maybe even a Curtis Martin um, that played during his era. But Bettis had the longevity. He has 13,336 rushing yards, his sixth all-time. When he retired, he was fifth. He got passed by LT, which everybody knows LT's a Hall of Famer, right? He had eight 1,000-yard seasons, Mr. Consistency, really, if you ask me, two All-Pros and six Pro Bowls. Miss, uh, there's a typo in my rundown. I said six Super Bowls, not quite that many. He did have one Super Bowl in his last game of his career. Uh, Winning the Super Bowl 40 in his hometown, Detroit. So this is a guy that I also believe should be in the Hall of Fame. Probably will be someday along with Tim Brown, but I don't understand, again, why they have to wait. And the last guy I'm going to reference in my Hall of Fame snubs is Michael Strahan. This was his first year of eligibility, so maybe some writers out there didn't think he was worthy of, of the first year. Again, I don't really understand that, 141.5 141.5 sacks in his career, still has the single-season sack record at 200 at 22.5. That's the uh, most in a single season, like I said. And uh, Jared Allen came within a half sack of that. So it's been closely contested in recent years, but uh, no one has passed it yet. Still a record. In, in 2003, he got 18.5 sacks. Defensive Player of the Year in 2001, the year that he... Broke the sack record and got it. Seven-time Pro Bowler, four-time All-Pro, six seasons of 10 sacks or less, and like Bettis, went out on top, winning the Super Bowl in his last game in 2007 against the undefeated New England Patriots on what was one of the best defensive lines I've ever seen in the last 15 years of football. So, And he was the the savvy veteran anchor of that line. It's a guy that, again, he'll eventually get in, but don't really understand why he has to wait honestly I think Strahan will wait shorter than Brown or Bettis I mean my my guess would be these guys get in next year but I said the same thing last year so I think Strahan will definitely get in next year Tim Brown we'll see Bettis I keep saying he's next year so your guess is as good as mine at this point But these guys, in my mind, are definitely Hall of Famers, along with a lot of other guys that I didn't mention. But just because of time constraints, I thought it was worthy of mentioning these three guys, who I definitely think are worthy of the Hall of Fame, along with the other seven who got inducted this past weekend. Again, congratulations to all of them. Some of the best players of all time at their positions, and they should be celebrated. All right, we're going to take a break. That was a long first segment But stay tuned. We have more Hall of Fame stuff coming up later in the show. And we're back here on Football Nation's Monday Morning Huddle. I'm your host, Dave Holcomb. Our second segment is going to be a little shorter today because we ran so long in our first segment, but we're going to touch upon four brief topics. First of all, we want to send out our condolences to the Donovan family. Art Donovan, a Hall of Fame defensive tackle from the Baltimore Colts, died on Sunday. He was a member of the 1958-1959 and 1959 Colt championship teams, played in what is considered by historians to be the greatest football game of all time, the greatest game ever played. Is the coined phrase, uh, and they when they defeated the New York Giants in overtime in 1958. As I was researching Donovan before our show today, um, players that he played against and teammates of his kept saying that he was one of the greatest defensive tackles to ever play, uh, really knew how to play the position. He's a person, a player that I'd never heard of before, but that, there's lots of players I'd never heard of before, and I'm this is why it's so important as part of the media when a player, a Hall of Fame player or a great player that had an impact on the game passes away that we should honor his memory and talk about him because he is a guy that should should be missed and should be remembered even though me and probably plenty of other people that are on our site didn't know who he was. Well, you should because he was an excellent player uh, playing defensive tackle for the Colts on those championship teams was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1968, so he was not a member of that Super Bowl team that lost to the New York Jets. He was already in the Hall of Fame by then. All right, On also on Sunday night, the Hall of Fame game between the Dallas Cowboys and the Dolph, uh, Miami Dolphins took place. Football has officially started. Now, we're not really in this show talking anything about on-the-field stuff. We'll get to maybe some in the next segment, but... A game has taken place, even though it was a regular, not a regular season game, a game that did not count. The big play of the game, Devontae Holloman, the rookie linebacker from the Cowboys, 75-yard interception return for a touchdown on Sunday night against the Dolphins. That, to me, is why the preseason is exciting. Okay, I shouldn't go as far as to say the preseason is exciting. Yes, I use the words excited and preseason in the same sentence. But I don't watch a ton of preseason games, and normally it's just the team that I root for, but occasionally when I do watch games of other teams or even the games that my team's playing, you're watching preseason for a couple of reasons. You want to see obviously what the first what the first team does in a series, in a quarter, however long they play. You wanna see them play well. Maybe not win you don't want you don't care if they win the game, but you want them to play well, look good, and you wanna but after that you wanna see the rookies. You wanna see what rookies are gonna make the team, which guys look good, what guys can you maybe pick up that might be a sleeper in your fantasy league. Well, this guy's probably not gonna be to picked in many fantasy leagues as a linebacker, but Certainly a guy that I think most people are going to know who he is now, especially in Dallas. Holloman, the long interception return, and he could definitely help him get on the roster. So uh, got to hand it to that guy. Big play in a regular season. pre. I keep seeing regular season. In a, in a preseason game, even though it is just preseason, still really big play. All right. The last two stories of this segment have to do with guys with the last name of Peterson. Let's start with Adrian. He said this week, and I wrote an article about it, that he aims to break the rushing record, not only break Emmett Smith's record of 18,355 yards, but break it by week 16 of 2017. So he circled the date. That's 79 games away. You can get all of the stats in my article, but to put this in perspective, that works out to 120.3 yards per game. That's what Peterson has to average over a five-year span. Okay, you're still not getting it maybe. That means for the next five seasons, Peterson has to average per year 1,900 yards. Okay. Okay. A 1,500-yard season is a career year for most running backs. Anything above 1,000 is a good season. Peterson is aiming to get 1,900 yards, which I don't doubt he could get again this year, but for the next five seasons in a row. It's one of the most improbable goals that I've ever heard. But I don't want to deter Peterson from trying to do it. If anybody can do it, if anybody can do something that sounds so insane, it can be Peterson because he returned from uh, an ACL tear in less than a year, which no one thought he'd be able to do, an incredible feat. I don't doubt that it's possible. I don't doubt that he could end up breaking the record. I do doubt that it could be by the time frame that he says. I don't see it happening. But I don't discourage him from chasing it. I, I encourage him to do it, and it's exciting. As for him coming out and saying this and kind of, in a way, putting this ahead of his team, I know Alex We talked about that on his podcast last week. Uh, his his show, And FN Today, appears every Wednesday on footballnation.com. To me, it was, yeah the PR answer is for him to say, I want to win games. I want to win Super Bowls, blah, blah, blah. But maybe I'm making an exception for Peterson because of who he is, and maybe I shouldn't do that. But to me, this didn't come across as a selfish or self-motivated thing. I think Peterson recognizes that he is the best player on his team. He didn't say that, but I think he's got to know that. He's one of the best players in the league. And he wants to carry his team. He wants to be the best player on his team. He wants to be the player his team turns to. And I think him motivating himself to this ridiculous goal is his way of saying, all right, team, I'm going to carry you and I'm going to carry you to a Super Bowl. I know he didn't say that and maybe I'm inferring too much, but I think in his own way, that was kind of what he was saying. So I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with me and say that he was being uh, self-centered with his goal rather than saying winning games is his goal. But I guess we can agree to disagree. The other Peterson, I'm sure there's a lot of other Petersons, but the other Peterson we're going to talk about today, Patrick Peterson, the defensive back for the Arizona Cardinals, just a couple of days ago, there are rumors, and there's definitely some truth to the rumors, that Peterson will get some snaps on offense this season. And I think the easiest comparison that you can make to, to Peterson right away is Devin Hester. And Hester didn't exactly work out on offense. He was a great return man, but he wasn't great wasn't really even good on offense because he couldn't catch the ball. From what I remember, he couldn't catch. Peterson appears to have better ball skills, and they've even had him throwing the ball a little bit in training camp, throwing balls to Larry Fitzgerald. Now, there have been a lot of changes on that offense, and I think they could. you could see Peterson – getting involved in some trick plays or some some regular plays catching the ball or some trickery with Bruce Arians as head coach. He likes to have those quote-unquote gadget plays that he had uh, when he was offensive coordinator in Pittsburgh and Indianapolis. So he loves those kinds of plays. I think he's going to use his – star players, his playmakers, and and Pearson is one of those players. So I think he's going to use him in any way he can. Now he's got Larry Fitzgerald as well. Michael Floyd is a young uh, second-year man that's going to make strides in his second year. He was on my list of the top 10 most improved players that's going to m- most improve for the 2013 season. That's a slide so you can check out on my profile as well. I, Michael Floyd and and the quarterback now, Carson Palmer. I think with Palmer at the helm, although he's past his prime, he's still better than what they had last year at quarterback. So upgrades all around for the Cardinals on offense. I think they could be a much improved team on offense, and Peterson could be involved in it. We're going to take another break. Here's another one from Phil Collins on his album No Jacket Required. Welcome back to Football Nation's Monday Morning Huddle. I'm your host, Dave Holcomb. We're going to have a quick fourth and long segment for you today. We don't want to keep you too long. We've already kept you over 40 minutes so far with our first two segments, so we want to get you out of here quick. First statement, Donovan McNabb got his number retired last Monday with the Philadelphia Eagles. No one will ever wear the number five again in green in Philadelphia. So my statement, in five years since McNabb just retired last week, in five years McNabb will be a serious Hall of Fame candidate in Canton. I'm going to say punt. It kind of crossed my mind that perhaps he could be an interesting candidate on the ballot. And uh, this last week when uh, I wrote an article about McNabb and his number being retired, uh, one of our guests from a few weeks ago, Chad Johnson, sent me a tweet on Twitter and said, McNabb, Hall of Fame, question mark. So this is actually, a, um, the statement was from him. Uh, and thanks very much, Chad, for sending us a suggestion for on our show. Anybody can send us uh, a statement that they'd like me to go over on the show, just tweet at me, H O L C O M B, and we can get you your name dropped on the show and a question or um, a statement in, involved in one of the segments. So anyway, to, to McNabb, he's got 30, 37,276 passing yards and 234 passing touchdowns. McNabb was a really great player. He was. Now, one of the best quarterbacks, I'd say, of his generation, the time that he played. But when Hall of Fame voters come around to voting for him, they're going to remember that he played in a very past happy era. And he played with other guys like Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. McNabb actually came in the league just a year after Manning, Manning coming in, if my memory is certainly correct, in 1998. McNabb top pick in 1999. So his era almost completely overlaps Manning's. Just, it was just shorter. So to me, he's going to be compared to those guys. But in my mind, he actually, I don't think I'm going to compare him to Manning or Brady. I want to compare him to, Super Bowl, to, uh, to quarterbacks that didn't win the Super Bowl. Because that, I think, is one thing, unfortunately for McNabb, that many people are going to remember. The four straight championship games, five total in his career, only going to one Super Bowl and losing to Tom Brady. So I personally think he's going to, if he won a Super Bowl or maybe two Super Bowls, I think he'd be a Hall of Fame quarterback with the same stats. That's just the way the world is. If you're a champion, people look at you differently. That's the way it is in sports. It's not fair, but that's just the way it is. I think if McNabb was a a champion, was a Super Bowl champion, I think he'd be a Hall of Famer. But he's not, so other quarterbacks that are in the Hall of Fame that did not win a Super Bowl... Dan Marino, Jim Kelly, Dan Fouts, Fran Tarkington, and Warren Moon. Do we really think Donovan McNabb is in the same bracket, the same class as those names that I just mentioned? No, I, I don't believe so. So I, I would pun away McNabb ever making it to the Hall of Fame. I think he's he's a great candidate for Eagles Hall of Fame, Eagles retiring his number, I think he'll make it to the Hall of Fame ballot. Not sure if he'll be a finalist, but I don't think McNabb will ever be enshrined at Canton. Moving on to another thing that Chad Johnson uh, suggested we have on our show to a guy that will definitely be enshrined at Canton, Tony Gonzalez, currently has 1,242 catches. Now, Chad and I over the week got into a little argument about whether Gonzalez has a realistic chance of of passing Jerry Rice for the all-time receptions total, Rice at 1,549. So, Gonzalez, 307 short, 308 short of passing Rice. And Gonzalez already came out and said that this 2013 was going to be his last year. Now, he did say the same thing last year. I know that was part of Chad's argument. But if you were going to say... If you were going to ask me whether he was going to pass this record or not, I would say no. I'm putting this away. I I really don't think Gonzalez is going to get 300 more catches in his career. Now, Gonzalez has been an excellent player. Don't get me wrong. In addition to 1,242 catches, he has 14,268 receiving yards, 103 touchdowns, and oh, by, oh, by the way, this guy's a tight end. <laughs> he is... In the top five in those categories as a tight end, which is just unbelievable. Number one far and away among tight ends. So this guy is clearly going to be in the Hall of Fame. Has made every single Pro Bowl since 1999, missing just one in 2009, his first year in Atlanta. Don't know why he missed that one. He had a good season too. But if you look at his catching numbers from the last couple of years, 2012 kind of the the odd the odd season out you could say ninety three catches nine hundred and thirty yards he again made the all pro last year if he continues at that pace yeah sure he can reach it in four years but at thirty six years old I don't think he can keep up and a, uh, a rate of catching ninety three balls per season the year before he had eighty the year before he had seventy now seventy is one of his lower numbers all-time for catches in a season. But how many more years at 36 is he going to have 85, 90-year catches per year? I don't think that's real feasible, even if he plays four more years, which I don't think he will. So I think it's, in my mind, the record, if you're a Jerry Rice fan, is safe. I don't think he's going to end up passing Jerry Rice's total for catches. It's an interesting topic, just kind of like McNabb. I think it's interesting to discuss, but I I really don't think it's possible. And the last statement of today's show, yes, we're going to bring in Tim Tebow. It's been a much quieter offseason for the guy being in New England, and that's going to be my statement. Um, Does he realistically have a chance of making New England's final roster? I'm going to grunt. I think they really like Tim Tebow. Bill Belichick brought him in for a reason. And I think there's no pressure on the guy. There's no doubt in anyone's mind that Tom Brady is the starting quarterback, obviously. Tim Tebow is not a controversy this year because he's not paired with another quarterback that isn't good. Clearly, Tom Brady is the starter. And I read an article this past week, a couple of days ago, that, that said that. That's why I brought this up on the show, because I think it's actually something worth discussing about Tim Tebow. What a difference a team makes, what a difference a leader makes. When two guys are competing for a job, it's very difficult to also lead the team. And I think people, regular fans... Who maybe haven't played a sport in a long time, or who, who are, or who never played a sport, don't understand that. It's very difficult to be a leader and for people to look up to you and look at you for guidance when you're not starting. And that's the case with Mark Sanchez. He continues to fight for his job. How can he lead? How can he have any confidence when T- Tim Tebow's breathing down his neck? Well. And it's, it's also not a good situation for Tebow because Tebow is wondering, do I lead? Do I not lead? Do I follow Sanchez? What will I do? It's an awful situation. And I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean this to be about the Jets. I wanted to praise the Patriots and the way they've been able to handle Tim Tebow. Brady, clearly the starter, clearly the leader. Tim Tebow actually looks up to him. Tebow recognizes his role with the team. He falls into place. And is a valuable asset to the team when called upon. That is what Tim Tebow can bring to a team. That is what he's supposed to bring. What he fails to bring to you in his ability, that's what he brings to you in the locker room. A leader, a guy that knows his place and is a viable asset when called upon. I think he's going to definitely make the roster, and I think he's going to be pretty good in New England. I don't know how much he's going to play, but I think he's going to be good. When he's on the field, he'll be effective because Belichick is going to put him in situations that will benefit him and the team. And I think he will end up playing pretty well for them. All right, here's one more from Phil, and then we'll come back and wrap up today's show. Welcome back to Football Nation's Monday Morning Huddle. I'm your host, Dave Holcomb. We have one last reference that I'm going to suggest you check out, a slideshow that I did uh, actually two weeks ago. I forgot to reference it last week. But I went back to Europe this past spring, uh, early summer in May to June, and I did another Terrible Towel project. So for anybody who saw my Terrible Towel project from last year, my trip last year in Europe, I had over... Thirty, I believe it was over. Ended up being over thirty pictures of the terrible towel and me in famous European places. This one a little bit smaller. Ended up being seventeen pictures, but uh, had a couple more in London, and then went to a few other cities while I was in Europe: uh, Amsterdam, Stockholm, and Oslo. The the big spots, few other. Uh, tiny places in Norway where I ended up getting the terrible towel and me in a picture. So check out the slideshow on uh, the website, footballnation.com. Now don't forget to check out all of the other stuff that I produced and many other stuff that other people have produced, great stuff happening on Football Nation, and it's only going to heat up as we get closer and closer to the season. That's all we have for this week's show. Until next week, I'm going to go try and find some peace in my mind.